Good morning. Our first case this morning is Galway versus Snell, and we will hear from the appellant. May it please the court, Chief Justice and Associate Justices, my name is Greg Connor of the Connor Law Group located in Raleigh, North Carolina. I represent Michael Galloway, who is both the trustee of the Melissa Snell Trust and the personal representative of the estate of Melissa Snell, deceased. Mr. Chief Justice, I wish to reserve five minutes of my time for rebuttal. We are here today before this court on an appeal based on the dissent of Judge Hampson from the majority opinion of the Court of Appeals, finding provisions in a separation agreement between the parties were ambiguous. Our argument today is that the Court of Appeals majority opinion ruling that the separation agreement between Jeff Snell and Melissa Snell was ambiguous, and that was error. Specifically, that the plain meaning of the provisions at issue has only one reasonable meaning, not two, and therefore was not ambiguous. The rules of contract construction laid out by the Supreme Court's cases require this result. Now, before I make my formal arguments, I will provide a brief recitation of the important facts. These are divided into the facts outside the contract and things that we know only within the four corners of the contract itself. I make this distinction because some of the arguments of the defendant appellee have focused on contested facts, extraneous to the contract, which we argue are not appropriate for review of a summary judgment ruling. As recited by the Court of Appeals in its opinion, Melissa Snell was a cancer survivor with four minor children when she separated from her husband, Jeff Snell. On March 3rd, 2017, she filed a lawsuit for equitable distribution, child custody, child support, alimony, and post-separation support. On February 8th, 2018, the parties attended a formal settlement mediation with their attorneys present and a certified mediator. A settlement agreement was signed by the parties and notarized. The attorneys also signed the agreement as well as the mediator. As the Court of Appeals notes, in April of 2018, Melissa learned of the recurrence of her cancer. In May of 2018, she established the Melissa Snell Trust for the benefit of her minor children, changing the beneficiary of her life insurance policies to her trust, also giving notice of the change of her life insurance policies to Jeff Snell. On February 21st, 2019, very tragically, Melissa Snell passed away. As recited by the Court of Appeals opinion, at the time of mediation, there existed life insurance policies on the lives of Jeff Snell, Melissa Snell, and all four minor children. All of these life insurance policies were addressed specifically in the settlement agreement and is the sole focus of this lawsuit and appeal. Next, there are important aspects of the settlement agreement that can be discerned solely from the four corners of the agreement. And this appears in the record at page 28. First, the parties were involved in comprehensive adversarial litigation as referenced by the file number at the top of the agreement. In the list of issues addressed in the preamble, including, quote, custody, child support, spousal support, and equal distribution. That is, this settlement agreement was intended to resolve all issues between the parties. Second, that the agreement is separated by headings into sections, including those titled equitable distribution, 
non-ED children's assets, and support child and spousal. Third, the provisions at issue concerning Melissa and Jeff's obligation to maintain life insurance as a backstop for their obligations to pay for college expenses are all contained in the section of the settlement agreement titled support hyphen child and spousal, while the provision concerning the children's insurance policies appears in that section separately designated non-ED children's assets. Page 32 of the record has equal distribution and then a subset non-ED assets, children's assets, then the beginning of the support child and spousal, and then the provision with regard to Jeff's life insurance, Melissa's life insurance, and then finally the creation of the children's trust, which trails onto the page 34 of the record. Fourth, the contract contains provisions requiring the parties to fund existing 529 plans, and in the event they are insufficient to fund eight semesters at a UNC tuition rate, the parties agree to contribute monies with Jeff paying 90% and Melissa paying 10% of those costs. Fifth, in the support section, there's a provision for Jeff to maintain $2 million of life insurance with Melissa as the beneficiary and immediately following a provision for Melissa to maintain $1 million of life insurance with Jeff as the beneficiary. It states that they maintain these policies to secure their obligations to pay these college costs. As an aside, the parties were already beneficiaries under their existing policies and the two children's trusts could take up to 90 days to create. Six, the settlement agreement states two bullet points below Melissa and Jeff's life insurance provisions the following. And this is really the provision at issue. Children's trust, hyphen, each party shall within 90 days set up a trust for the benefit of the minor children so that the children can receive any insurance proceeds in lieu of the other party being named the beneficiary. It goes on to recite uh, Jeff's brother being the trustee and, and Melissa's brother being the trustee of her trust. So there would be two trusts. Seventh, what is also noteworthy other than the clear language of this provision is that the provision appears in the support section and not the ED section of the settlement agreement. This is important because this agreement is both a property settlement agreement and a separation agreement. If the children's trust applied only to the children's life insurance, it should have appeared in the ED section, not two bullet points from the life insurance requirements in the separation agreement portion. Eighth, if the children's trust provision applied only to the children's life insurance, it should have said, in lieu of the parties being named the beneficiaries, plural, instead of the other party being named the beneficiary. This is because the Court of Appeals tells us in paragraph four of the majority opinion that, quote, each of the four children also had a life insurance policy, each naming Jeff and Melissa as beneficiaries. So for each of the children's life insurance policies, their parents were jointly the beneficiary. But when we look at the language of the, of the children's trust, it talks about the singular, changing it from the other party. It seems much more appropriate that it's referencing these two life insurance policies, one on Jeff's life naming Melissa and Melissa's life naming Jeff. And when you look at the agreement, however, 
didn't the Court of Appeals feel as though in the majority view that uh, there was one section, as you were talking about the subsections, there was one subsection that talked about the children's trust, but there was another section that did not talk about the children's trust. Mm -hmm. How would you reconcile that in terms of it being unambiguous mm -hmm. if you've got one subsection expressly mentioning the children's trust, but another section not referencing it accordingly? I think there's a good reason. So I, I believe your question is you have the, the children's life insurance policy that appears in the other section, and it references the Children's Trust. But then, uh, down in the spousal support section and, and the separation agreement, it, it does not specifically reference it. The first thing I'll say is this was composed, and it's clearly not even numbered, it's bullet points. We're at a mediation where they're probably just typing as they go. And I think it's an important, um, important aspect to support settlement agreements that are reached at mediation, even though the process is not as clean or as unambiguous as one would hope. Um, but to answer your question specifically, it makes sense that they would then reference the trust because it doesn't even appear in the separation agreement portion. So they went ahead and referenced that trust in, because it's in the ED portion. And I will say that even though it's labeled non-ED, children's assets, clearly those were those not children's assets. Those in the, in the um, Excel spreadsheet that's attached to the agreement, it lists whole life insurance policies for the children, and they have a cash value. So these have real, these have real cash value. Clearly they were owned by the parents. The children didn't own those, those things and they were assets that were part of the ED, and that's why they appear in that ED section. So to answer your question is that it was in a different section, so I think they felt they had to reference the trust, whereas the other ones are located near each other with the two provisions, one intervening unrelated provision, all in that section. Would you have us look at it then as if uh, one subsection can be completely uh, separated from the other uh, to make sense to comply with what the obvious intent was, namely that each spouse would, as long as there was a child support obligation, support the children going forward? Mm -hmm. Or are you saying that there somehow can be some reconciliation between the two subsections, even though one references the children's trust and one does not? Yeah, I understand your question. And I don't think it's an exclusive reference. The fact that it references the trust it is in keeping with the language of the trust provision because it says any insurance policies. If it had only referenced the children's life insurance policies, that would have made a lot of sense. If, the, if it had said uh, children's trust, the children's life insurance policies. But I think they used the word any insurance proceeds because they were referencing multiple life insurance policies, not only as children's, but also these policies on the husband and wife naming each other. So, Council, I, I take it your <coughs> position is the language in the agreement, so I'll just call it the contract. You think the contract is unambiguous. Am I right about that? Yes, Your Honor. And we're going to hear from your friend in a minute. Yeah. Are we going to hear an argument that the contract is unambiguous as well, or I'm trying to understand, do well, both parties say it's unambiguous? Because you don't agree on what it means. 
I believe that the, the defendant appellee, and of course I will not argue for her, has said both that either it means what she wants it to mean or it's ambiguous. So well, and and, to, and I think your question is, how do I respond to that? Right, and of course it's not just we have two very competent uh, lawyers here today. We also have three Court of Appeals judges who both presented two different reasonable interpretations in their view. Right. If we agree one way or the other the contract's unambiguous, we're saying to all the people that have the other view, your view was unreasonable, which is a big ask. So persuade yeah. me right now, there's no reasonable interpretation other than the view that you're presenting right now. Well, I, I will say this. Um, I, I absolutely think it is unambiguous, and I think that the reason that especially lawyers might look at this and say, oh my gosh, this is not perfect prose. Um, there's a problem with this. It's not clear. You know, it's not perfectly clear. And, and I think that the problem is that throughout this state, we have uh, mediations taking place where people are doing things in ways that we wouldn't do uh, if we could sit there and type all the provisions in exactly as we wanted to. And yet, they are binding on these parties. And then it's, a, it's been stated by the, this court that it's an interest in upholding settlement agreements, bringing finality to litigation. So then, you know, I think that the, the, the majority in the Court of Appeals looked at this and said, well, you know, this really, this really could have been better. And they focused on the children's life insurance provision. And there were real problems with that provision. And that's why the minority opinion kind of distances, <laughs> says that it's severable. Because that provision says that, that the children's trust shall be the beneficiary of the children's life insurance. There are two trusts created in the children's in the children's trust provision, one where Melissa's brother is the trustee and one where Jeff's brother is the trustee. And they're supposed to be reciprocal. So the children, let's say, knock on wood, the children, some one or more of the children passed away. I assume that their current life insurance policies were such that the name, the, the, the mom and dad, now it says the trust, the children's trust shall be the beneficiary. And so, that provision, I think, that provision has problems, um, and, but it doesn't tie the hands of the rest of the, the contract. And I, I kind of go into some of the case law where it says, as long as, as it is not intertwined and it's reciprocal, those provisions, it, it's okay that there was a problem with the children's life insurance provision. It's, it's flawed. Uh, it doesn't really say who, who the beneficiary is in any substantive way. But meanwhile, down here, we have a million dollars of life insurance on Melissa's life and $2 million on Jeff's life. We can't, I, I, don't, I think that that's quite clear what happens to that. They, they can name each other or in lieu of that, they can name the trust so that their, their ex-spouse doesn't get a windfall. And that's really... The crooks of the the problem is: Do we really think it was reasonable that in this very litigious divorce that the parties thought that they, and especially with a, a cancer survivor, they thought 
that they were going to leave $2 million or a $1 million to the other person? I don't think that's reasonable. I think it's reasonable to think that they had provided this in lieu of any insurance proceeds language. And I, I don't, don't want, and I don't want to interrupt you, but yeah. that's the point I think where the rub comes, and that's where you say, if I understand it correctly, that is unambiguous mm -hmm. because the in lieu of language is clear enough, in your sense at least, mm -hmm. to make it clear that the wife here. Uh, had the wherewithal to be able to change her beneficiary to the children's trust from the husband mm -hmm. and it be unambiguous language. Is, is that where your contention lies? Uh, yes, Justice Morgan, correct. Yeah. And just to follow up on the issue of reasonableness, uh, there's a distinction between saying that um, language can be reasonably interpreted one way versus the person interpreting them is being reasonable or unreasonable, right. right? And as I understand your argument, the majority in suggesting that the that there's two possible reasonable interpretations of the language, the, the interpretation that would say that this provision about the children's trust only applies to the children's policies requires um, assuming language that isn't there. That's right and also foregoing the language that's in the Children's Trust itself that <coughs> references any insurance proceeds, and in lieu of, that that language is left uh, completely out and has no meaning. It can't be reconciled under the interpretation of the majority opinion. Um, and and I, I pulled a case, Walton versus City of Raleigh, which is a Supreme Court case um, that dealt with a consent judgment, which is interpreted like um, under contract terms and near the end it says parties can differ as to the interpretation of language without its being ambiguous and we find no ambiguity here that is to say there's a, there's a, there's some language in some of the decisions that says well if things weren't ambiguous we wouldn't even be here but that's not the case that people can differ but there can be a reasonable interpretation of the language. Um, so Melissa and, and um, I'm sorry, I'm going to switch pick ninth. This, I was going to say about the contract that the section concerning the children's life insurance um, contained in the property settlement section is, as Judge Hampson notes, confusing. Judge Hampson, in his minority opinion, references Morrison versus Morrison for the proposition that provisions and marital settlement agreements are presumed separable. In addition, this court in Rose v. Vulcan Materials Company made clear that provisions are severable when there was an illegal provision. And it said where they are not dependent on the illegal provision for their enforcement. Here the children's insurance provision does not affect Jeff and Melissa's insurance provisions or the children's trust provisions or vice versa and is completely severable. I say, you know, I've covered a lot of this, but I would say the majority failed to construe the children's trust provision on its face simply because uh, these provisions do not have two separately reasonable interpretations. I don't believe that you can give full value to the children's trust provision by saying that it only referenced the children's life insurance policies. And that is especially true, as I pointed out, that the children's life insurance policies had two beneficiaries, 
but the language in the actual trust agreement talks about changing it to the other, in the singular, the other beneficiary, which is really would only apply to the life insurance that existed between Jeff and Melissa at the time. Um, the life insurance reference in the children's trust included Melissa's life insurance and not just the policies on the lives of the children. The Court of Appeals cited its own opinion, Piedmont Bank and Trust for Stevenson, for the proposition that, quote, words are to be given their usual and ordinary meaning, and all the terms of the agreement are to be reconciled if possible. However, this court has held similarly in several contract cases. I'll note that both State v. Philip Morris USA, both the 2007 and 2009 cases, dealt with ambiguities in that trust, in that trust agreement that was at issue. And they said in the 2007 case, where the immediate context in which words are used is not clearly indicative of the meaning intended, resort may be had to other portions of the trust and all the clauses of it are to be construed, if possible, so as to bring them into harmony. At its core, the dispute is this, where a settlement agreement states that the parties will name the ex-spouse as a beneficiary of their life insurance, but then states in a later provision that the that each party within 90 days will set up a trust for the benefit of the minor children so that the children can receive any insurance proceeds in lieu of the other party being named the beneficiary, are those provisions ambiguous? And that's what I'm, I think really is the focus should be the life insurance policy provision for Melissa, the one for Jeff, and the children's trust. Are those ambiguous together? When we draw this other provision in there, there's nothing exclusive. It, it doesn't say uh, the children's trust, as confusing as that beneficiary was, is, and this only applies to the children's life insurance. We would argue that they are not ambiguous on their face and are fully reconcilable. While the earlier life insurance provision sets out an interim solution for the minor children beneficiaries that exist at the time of the signing of the settlement, the later provision sets out the intent of the parties with regard to a minor's trust. That is, the parties were each other's beneficiaries under the existing life insurance policies. So that's why they have each other named there. There, At the time it was signed, there was no children's trust for either of these parties. Within 90 days, they, there's a shall. They're, they're commanded to set these up. And if they choose to, <coughs> in lieu of, I, I know Black's Law Dictionary in lieu of is instead of or in place of. These provisions are not contradictory, but instead are fully reconcilable. Um, I, I would like to make an argument also that that the, that the court can look at the intent. And you know, there's reference to Hagler v. Hagler and Lane v. Scarborough. I wouldn't go as far as they do. I don't think you need to imply terms to make this work. But you can look within the four corners of the agreement and discern the purpose of this agreement. The purpose was simple. That is, they wanted to provide money for their college education. They were afraid, maybe because Melissa was a cancer survivor, or maybe not, maybe just as a prudent step, that they would have the life insurance policies fund the, the college obligation. They certainly didn't intend to have a windfall for the ex-spouse. They created a, 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 a minor's trust and it was for the benefit of the children. Um, I would say that the, that, that the majority opinion in Hagler v. Hagler after ruling on the equal distribution rights was waived 
states as follows, party to a marriage who are committed to dissolution of their marriage relationship and who are clearly intend to make a final and complete compromise and settlement of their marital affairs, including property rights, by agreement between them and without the intervention of the court should be able and indeed encouraged to do so. The value of such agreements lies in the ability to have them enforced in the courts. The law favors such agreements, and the, when the court finds such a clear intent expressed in a separation agreement, it will be for, enforced. And realize what Hagler and Hagler and Lane v. Scarborough, there was, in, in, in Lane, there was no reference to a waiver of inheritance uh, or intestate succession rights. And in Hagler, there was no waiver of marital rights uh, to property. And in those cases, they actually implied those terms based on the general terms looking within the four corners of the agreement. I'm not asking the court to go that far, but I do think the court should look at the intent. I just don't think it's reasonable to think that the, that, that provision doesn't permit Melissa to name her life insurance as the beneficiary. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. May it please the court, Chief Justice Newby, Associate Justices, I'm Betty Sousa. I'm a lawyer in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm in my 42nd year of practice. I practice with the law firm of Smith, Devnam, more names than that, and have been with the firm and its predecessors since I was a summer law clerk in 1980. I am here to represent today Jeffrey Snell, who was married for 17 years to Melissa Galloway Snell and is and has been raising their four children since her death um, in uh, February of 2019, so for four years now, um, in the home in which they all lived until Melissa um, moved out of the house. The dissent in this action was wrong. The dissent ignored the mandates of maintaining the life insurance policies, and there were particular policies that could be combined to come up with the dollar figures that these parties agreed to. And an important aspect that hasn't really been addressed here is who drafted this document? Um, I wrote down not perfect prose, and boy, do I agree with that. Um, there are lots and lots of issues, ambiguities um, in terms of wording. There is children's trust singular, children's trust plural. There is um, language about insurance policy when there wasn't one policy that would have worked. But what is clear is the shall maintain clauses and the document was drafted by Emily Moore Tyler, the attorney for Melissa. It was drafted and sent by email as a docx about nine o'clock at night, the night before the mediated settlement conference in front of attorney Carrie Close, a certified um, domestic court mediator. 
She drafted this language, and the language of the shall maintain clauses did not change. In fact, they looked at those clauses because we <coughs> attached the initial draft to the affidavit of Jeff Snell, which is part of the record here. Um, and she, cha it, it changed from Jeff being required to maintain, shall maintain $4 million of life insurance on his life with Melissa as the beneficiary. That dollar amount changed and eventually was two million, one million. Jeff Snell had to maintain two million dollars of life insurance and shall maintain. They existed, there was that much. Even though the agreement says a life insurance policy, that, that isn't what it was, it was two and attached to his affidavit is a, a layout of the actual policies that were in existence at that time period. What is... Counsel? Um, yes. If, if we don't think that the um, contract is ambiguous, to what extent is that evidence that you're talking about relevant? Well, I would agree that there is an argument to be had. Now, the majority found that the contract was ambiguous, and more importantly for us here today, uh, Melissa Galloway Snell took the position that the contract was ambiguous and um, attempted to change the contract and, and all of that. Um, we would contend that shall maintain trumps the set up the policy so that the uh, children's trust can be the beneficiary. In other words, there was a mandate for how much Jeff had to maintain, and these were existing policies. Mandate for Jeff, mandate for Melissa, shall maintain, shall maintain. There is then another clause regarding some medical expenses and then there is this language about the children's trust. But, but my question is, um, you're talking about uh, evidence of things outside the four corners of the document. My, my question was, <clears throat> if we look at the contract and we think it's uh, unambiguous, Correct. do we consider any of that? outside evidence that you're talking about? Well, I think that that is, is certainly a position that the court would take, that if the document on its four corners appears unambiguous, then the court could decide what, in fact, was meant to be. Um, this not perfect prose, however, would be difficult to do. However, I believe that the idea of reconciling the, the shall maintain with the other clause about can put the, the policies in children's trust. It's more than just the children's policies that are, uh, I think, available. I, I believe that, that the reasonable interpretation of that is that the parties could purchase new insurance and could name the children's trust as the beneficiary. I believe that there well, were what, other policies that existed that didn't that exceeded the, the one million, the two million, 
that could have been put into the children's trust but the shall maintain is very specific and specific as to a dollar amount and again um, Ms. Uh, Tyler is the one who drafted this document and the language did not change. But what's ambiguous about any insurance proceeds? Um, it, what is ambiguous is when you look at any and you compare it to shall maintain. And so any in a perfect world would have said any other policies other than these ones that are shall maintain. Shall maintain has zero meaning. It's not unusual though in a contract to have a requirement stated in one provision and then to have a subsequent provision that modifies uh, that, that requirement. Um, isn't that right? I think that certainly occurs. Yes, sir. I do. So why isn't that? What's happening here? Well, Importantly, because I see that there could be a reconciliation, is that the shall maintain clauses had a time limitation. They shall maintain them for so long as the children are, are uh, going through their education. And so at the end of that time, Melissa could transfer those policies to the children's trust. At the end of that time, Jeff could transfer his policies to the Children's Trust. There could be other policies, and there were other policies that existed. There were 12 policies, and there could have been other policies that could have been put into the Children's Trust. Are those other policies mentioned in the contract? In the mediated settlement agreement? Um, only to the extent that there is an attachment that references them, and um, they are set out a little more clearly and easy, easier to read um, attached to Jeff's affidavit. Um, and he sets out and got the information from Northwestern Mutual. All of these policies were with one insurer, Northwestern Mutual. And so those are there. But there, there were other policies, and these are the ones, these dollar amounts, that addressed shall maintain. And we contend that the dissent basically ignored that. Shall maintain a policy with Jeff as the beneficiary, shall maintain a policy with Melissa as the beneficiary, means nothing if you didn't have to maintain that policy and you could just go in and change it. The word change isn't used there. You can change the beneficiary. How, how, how would you reconcile your position with the aspect that in all of the other clearer aspects of the agreement that they inure to the benefit of the children, but with your interpretation, these would go more towards the ex-spouses in terms of one benefiting from the life insurance policy of the other. It would seem as though your position would be inconsistent with all of the other children-centric aspects of the agreement? Um, I, I understand the question, and this would be my response. Um, you would be necessarily, because this isn't a policy on someone else's life, it was each other's life. These are parties 
who is part of this agreement entered into a custody agreement. Both parties are fit and proper parents to have the children. And so education is but one expense that would be involved if the other spouse were to die. And Jeff was more of the breadwinner, although Melissa worked up until the time that she became very sick. Um, and he had the policies and kept them. He shall maintain, he kept his policies in place with her as the beneficiary of the policies. Even after she died, he had not changed them. Melissa, and this is a big factor that comes into play, after her cancer returned, um, took the position that this agreement was not clear. Previously, trying to enforce the agreement. They even filed a, a contempt action because there was a $47,000 payment that they contended um, had to have been made. It was owed. And there is, this is part of the email stream that um, uh, so Judge Shirley- in the record? Yes. Pardon? It's in the record filed in this case. Yes, The sir. emails and the yes, contempt sir. and all that. Yes, sir. Tell Someone? me what page it's on. Um, Mar the emails are March 18th and 19th. Um, referenced in my brief. In the email stream, um, the 19th and the 20th of March, there is uh, information from both Emily Tyler. I'm, I'm looking for a page number. I know. Yes, sir. I'm sorry. I'll find it. Documentary exhibit 145 to 147. Okay, I'm looking for the record on appeal in this case. That would be um, in the record on appeal, it is not there. This would have been the. If, if it's not in the record on appeal, should Pardon? we be considering any of it? Um, don't, don't we have appellate rules that it address was, these things? Yes. The, the Judge Shirley did not consider that. Um, he, however, it was objected to after it was discussed, that information. And, um, and then he took it under advisement during the hearing and his well, order. But my, my, my point is, don't our discussions today have to be about what's before this court, and that would be what is on our record on appeal. I think that that is true, Your Honor. Well, if you could keep your arguments 
based upon what's before us, that would be helpful. Yes, sir. With respect, again, to the shall maintain clauses, the shall maintain clauses um, were clear, uh, but even if they were not clear and even if they were at odds with the children's trust clause that they reference, then in that case, um, there was a sufficient ambiguity. And the, um, the app appellant in this case sought to and did enforce um, the $47,000 um, uh, claim. And Council, can I just, I want to go back to the uh, ambiguity question. Yes, so sir. just so I understand your argument. So on the textual ambiguity argument, uh, your position is that the the sh what you call the shall maintain provision. So you have these provisions that in essence create a time horizon and it's a very long one. It says um, as long as I think your client has support obligations or either party um, still has college expenses. So they're paying for the children up to the end of paying for college. For any right. of the children. So at that point, um, then it, you could change, presumably if you just had those two in isolation, you could name a different beneficiary that's totally unrelated to the family, a new person you're in a dating relationship with, whatever it is. And your position is it's odd to have that long time horizon and then just a couple of provisions later, say in 90 days, you're changing this over to someone else. That, that's a thing. You say that creates textual ambiguity sufficient that we start digging into the things you're talking about, all these other uh, extrinsic questions about the meanings. That, correct. That's correct. And, and at the end of that period of time, because it was a finite amount of time, it can be reconciled with the Children's Trust because after that point, the, uh, the person paying the premiums on these uh, term life policies could stop paying the premiums and no longer maintain them. Um, they could change the beneficiary. This is a finite period of time, which is the way in which we could, in theory, have, have prevailed that there wasn't an issue of fact because you can reconcile, and that's what the goal is in interpreting a contract, is to reconcile issues. Can we make these two work together? And that's the way that you can make them work together. You cannot reconcile the shall maintain Jeff as a beneficiary with the idea that this immediately could be changed. Well, except my, as I understand the argument on the other side, it's that the shall maintain covers the period until the trusts are created, and then the subsequent clause says what happens to the beneficiaries of any any insurance, that any insurance doesn't have any limitation. So the shall maintain is for the, up until the 90 days, and then the next provision kicks in, and the, and the trust can become the beneficiary. Um, I, I can see that, what, what you're saying, but it, it does not say that that's what would happen. Now, Melissa's um, affidavit makes reference to... But, but still just sticking to the four corners of this agreement, I want to go back to what I, what I understood Justice Morgan's question to be um, and maybe ask it in a slightly different way, and that is these provisions uh, appear in the support, um, child and spousal support, section rather than in the equitable distribution section. And, and if, the, if the purpose of the 
provision to um, shall maintain this policy was to, to be to the benefit of the spouse, um, should, wouldn't it more appropriately be under equitable distribution? Well, in theory, uh, to respond to the way that I think it can be um, thought of is that the surviving spouse would then have the four children to raise beyond just educational expenses um, would be uh, responsible for, for perhaps purchasing a new car, perhaps buying things that otherwise would not be directly for the child but would be of benefit to the child. But and the trust language doesn't say only for educational. It just says set up a trust for the benefit of the minor children. So it doesn't, it, it seems to me the interpretation you're suggesting still fits in within the provision that sets up the children's trust. I, I, I understand what you're saying and, and we would disagree that, that it, what this was was some additional amount of money that could in fact be used and had Jeff died, Melissa would have received $2 million in life insurance proceeds on his life, which is how they were set up. They were maintaining the way that they were set up. There were more insurance policies on his life, he was the primary breadwinner, than on Melissa's life. But these particular dollar amounts were in fact set out and um, those policies were shall maintain and we would contend that the mandate of shall maintain is, has to be followed before the permissive can put the policies into the children's trust. But it does trouble me if we're going to say that the language any policy, that that language somehow is, is either ambiguous or doesn't stand for all. I mean, any is a word that's used a lot in, in agreements and contracts. And um, you know, isn't it important that we give that language its normal and ordinary meaning? Um, well, it's, it's poorly worded. And, and any, any could clearly have said any other policies or it could have related to these policies after the period of time that the shall maintain period ended. And so once the educational expenses were paid and the, the person who was maintaining the policies could then choose to let them lapse or could continue to pay the premiums on the policies and make the beneficiary the children's trust. The children's trust is only mentioned in that paragraph, you know, two down from the shall maintain clauses, which they clearly were looking at, and the beginning paragraph, which makes uh, reference to the children's life insurance policies, shall be put in the children's trust or shall be the beneficiary of the children's trust. So they knew how to say that, and, um, and yet it wasn't. These were, again, drafted by Ms. Tyler um, the night before and sent around, and the modifications with respect to those particular provisions occurred there only as to two things. Number one, the dollar numbers that were involved. So if you compare the draft and you compare, and that's attached to the affidavit of Jeff Snell, and you compare the, um, the draft and the final 
agreement that was reached, then the changes include the dollar amounts and there is reference to a, another policy that Jeff could maintain on Melissa himself. He could continue to pay for that and maintain that for himself, um, excuse me, that was payable to him. And that provision struck through um, a couple of lines that are then initialed. So the par parties are still dealing with that. Um, there is reference to a current or existing policy that gets struck through. The dissent contemplated a number of matters that simply um, were inconsistent with, with both the documents and what the parties knew to be the case. Um, it contemplated that the insurance was being purchased. And that's not true. The insurance wasn't being purchased. Um, this all is included in Melissa's affidavit, and we contend that the dissent gave great weight to that affidavit um, in, in coming up with these various plans for um, what uh, would be uh, in, in the dissent's position um, a closed case, need, no need to talk about anything further. It contemplated one policy. It contemplated that the policy, and, and there were two, two $500,000 policies existed, contemplated that the policy would be purchased, that there was one policy, and also um, that the policy would, uh, let's see, that we didn't come up with the idea for the policy and it was late in the day. That's what Melissa's affidavit says. Um, the reason why this is confusing, and of course they took the position first that this was confusing, that we need to do a more formal agreement. Um, all of that took place after her cancer had returned and they, um, looked back at it and, and took the position of that. And then May 16th is the date that she transferred the beneficiary over um, to own the two policies, to the Children's Trust and not to Jeff. Um, but the reference in her affidavit is, we didn't come up with that until late in the day. And that's simply not the case. Again, the draft agreement prepared by Emily Tyler was sent both to the attorney for Jeff and to Jeff by Emily Tyler the night before. She then, and this is in Jeff's affidavit, which is part of the record, she then was the one who was typing, who was making changes, and those provisions were already in there, and Melissa knew it, and Jeff knew it but it was changed, or that theory was changed in the Melissa affidavit, which has what we contend to be sufficient errors in it in, in contrast with what was going on. So um, if the court wanted to strike all of that and simply look at the four corners of the document, we would contend that the four corners of the document say 
that she had to maintain a million dollars of life insurance with Jeff as the beneficiary, and that that was crystal clear. He had to maintain two million of life insurance with Melissa as the beneficiary, and that was clear, and he did that. The Children's Trust is a permissible option, but it makes zero sense, and therefore it's not a reasonable interpretation, in our opinion, that you would make those policies and those mandates and turn around two paragraphs down and suggest that as soon as the trust gets set up, I mean, it, it should say shall maintain until the trust gets set, set up. It says you shall maintain it until such time at, with Jeff as the beneficiary, with Melissa as the beneficiary, until such time as the educational expenses have been paid. At that point, you could, you could stop. You could transfer it to the Children's Trust. May, or can, is the word that's used. It's permissive. You could transfer it to a different trust, uh, transfer it to your new spouse. There will be various things that could be done but shall maintain had a specific time period. And that is the reconciliation that we would say is a reasonable interpretation, that you can take these provisions and you can make them make sense in that way. If there are no more questions, thank you very much for hearing us today. Thank you, Council. Rebuttal. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. The, uh, all I'll say about um, the many allegations is that they're hotly contested, and I don't think they're appropriate for consideration of this matter. I think we have to look at the four corners of the agreement. Um, to the extent that the argument is that Melissa's attorney somehow drafted something, I'll only point to the agreement itself it says in provision six, the provisions of this memorandum are fair and reasonable, and each party has had ample opportunity to obtain legal advice concerning the legal effect and terms of this memorandum. In section nine, it states, the parties hereto acknowledge that each has relied upon the agreement of the other to settle this matter as set forth in the memorandum, and this memorandum accurately reflects the agreement reached by the parties in mediation. They had every opportunity to come to an agreement to, and we didn't, they didn't just have the parties, they had their attorneys uh, and a partner at, at Masusa's firm represented uh, Jeff Snell and there was a mediator who was also a, a licensed attorney who was present. Um, with regard to this mandate that, that they, they must maintain this life insurance and that it has to be that beneficiary, and that you couldn't have another provision that modified that. I, I happened, and, and this is probably um, when lawyers get on Lexus, it can be a bad thing, but I, I looked for the word in lieu of. And in the general statutes, there are over 500 statutes, separate statutes, that have the word in lieu of. I found th this particular one that has to do with professional employer organizations, and I know there's not a one-to-one -one relationship between the interpretation of statutes and contracts, but um, it says, an applicant for licensure shall file with the commissioner a surety bond or other items that set forth, and it goes on. 
It then says in subsection F, this is 58-89A-50, in lieu of the surety bond required by this section, an applicant may submit to the commissioner an irrevocable letter of credit, and it goes on. It, it, and, and agreements are, are replete with examples of, of terms that seem absolute, and then it's modified, and there are, there are exceptions allowed, and, and in this case, the beneficiary is allowed to be changed to a minor's trust, and, and it applies to any life insurance proceeds. Thank you. Thank you, Council. Thank you, everyone.